Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast, once in the future official podcast of FlashofSteel.com, coming to you on the Idle Thumbs Network. I am your host for tonight, Troy Goodfellow, and this is episode number 196. We have been doing this stupid thing forever. Uh, with me tonight are two very good friends, and uh, one is our regular panelist, Dr. Bruce Derrick. Oh, hello, gamers. And then original panelists are our good friend from quarter to three and the other half of Tom versus Bruce, Mr. Tom Chick. Before we start, Troy, I just want to know if I can get anyone a cup of eggnog, let me know and I'll go do that. Do you have cinnamon? No, we have paprika. Does that go with eggnog? Oregano? One of those things. I don't think it's oregano. <laughs> Uh, how about chive? Do you like chive with your eggnog? I do not like chive with my eggnog. <laughs> anyway, uh, we invited uh, Tom here because we're talking about uh, playing games alone, something that he will be doing for the rest of his life. We have... Sorry, that was mean. <laughs> we're talking about uh, solitaire board games. Uh, this is inspired in part, and large part, in fact, by the release of the iPad app for one of the great... Um, supposedly great, I only a little bit of time with it, Solitaire Board War Games uh, from Dan Versen Games, Phantom Leader. It is a $16 app, and Bruce wrote a very interesting uh, and strong review of it for a quarter to three, and it led me to thinking about, well, the design of first Solitaire uh, board games. If you buy a board game, you will often see along the side with the difficulty meter also how suitable a game is for solitaire play. So you can talk a bit about that. And also what Phantom Leader itself and what makes it work both in the board version and in the app version. So I guess we'll start uh, with Bruce since you've put a lot of time into the app um, and in the board game itself. Um, you, what, what, what's the strong point you think of Phantom Leader as a first a single play, first as an application because if you play a lot of war games solo, playing a war game solo is not a big deal. If there's an AI, this isn't this isn't a game with an AI. It's a board game that you play by yourself. There's kind of a distinction there. Well, yeah, I mean it's hard to um, it's really hard to compare a, a, a game with AI to a, a solitaire board game because they're meant to do com- two completely different things. I can't remember what the question was because it was so long ago, but uh, uh, I think you asked me about um, what what is particularly good about Phantom Leader. Well, there are multiple particularly good things about Phantom Leader, um, but um, it tells you a great story, and it is non-trivial to uh, figure out a good strategy, and it generally, even once you... You know, sort of master the game and the system, it, it gives you a challenge. I think those three things are um, what makes the game uh, interesting from a, from a solitaire standpoint, which interestingly uh, has to use a whole bunch of tricks that uh, a regular sort of game against the computer uh, or against an AI uh, wouldn't really work. And it has to do a lot of things like show you... Um, you know, show you the game mechanics. It can't hide anything because the game mechanics are actually part of the thing that makes the game so uh, interesting. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. 
Yeah, that's a good start. Tom, have you had any time with Phantom Leader? Oh, yes, yes. I, I quite like Phantom Leader. I, I love this kind of game. I love this subject. Uh, I uh, am frequently, and you, you made a joke about it, but it's actually, there's, there's a lot of truth to this, Troy, that a lot of people who like board games find themselves sitting alone with a closet of board games, and yeah, for absolutely. whatever reason, their friends have families. You know, it can be hard to get three, four, five people together to play a board game. So a lot of us do find ourselves really liking board games and unable to do much with them. And that's where things like Phantom Leader come in. Now, I don't have Phantom Leader, the uh, the analog, the tabletop version, um, but I do have the iPad version, and it reminds me of a lot of other great sort of solitaire board games that I love that I look forward to talking about in a moment. Um, but one of the things that I really like about Phantom Leader, uh, mechanics aside that Bruce touched on, uh, I love the subject matter. I mean, I love, I, as, a, as a guy my age, I'm, I'm really fond of the Cold War. I love uh, the air war over Vietnam. Like, I, uh, I, I just find games that visit little corners like that and that visit them in that level of detail just fascinating, uh, and that's one of, that that I would say is one of my favorite things about Phantom Leader. I had a little exchange with Bruce, which I hope we can get into because he's dead wrong. Where I basically ah. posited, you, get, you wait for this. Here we go, Bruce. Where I basically posited <laughs> that Phantom Leader is the exact same from a mechanics perspective, the exact same thing as a game called Elder Sign Omens that I think Bruce either hates or disdains or considers himself above one of those three things. Uh, but I feel they're the exact same thing. Um, uh, I forgot. But but I just love the fact that Phantom Leader has this visits this little specific niche of history. Um, yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, and if it's Tom's favorite, then it's even more my favorite that it has that history thing. <laughs> so there. It does a really good job, I think, of um, capturing, I mean, it tries, has, tries to capture a lot about the Air War of Vietnam. The fact there's, it isn't just a war game, but there's this political track going on along at the same time that kind of, that can limit the type of missions uh, you can run. So it, you have this, I mean, you said, Bruce, this storytelling part, and it really tries to tell as much of the story of uh, fighting the air war over Vietnam as it possibly can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no, it, it definitely. Um, I mean, the 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 hallmark of a good game, I think, is that it. Or uh, sorry, I should rephrase that. The, the hallmark of a good historical game is that it incorporates many historical elements into the game mechanics, but uses sort of um, uh, interrelated and simple. Uh, sort of simple functions for each one so that the, their interplay is the thing that uh, causes you to have to, you know, go through multiple decision iterations. But each one has to be evocative of something. And I think that um, that the way that Phantom Leader does this is that it uh, just explain to uh, the many, I'm sure many people who haven't uh, played the game or aren't familiar with it. It's a, like we all said, it's a game about the air war over Vietnam. But um, what you do is you actually control uh, a squ you know squadron in quotes. It's not really. A, I don't think it's really a, a squadron from a historical perspective. But you have a group of pilots, and each of these pilots has uh, abilities. Um, they have uh, uh, air to air and air to ground capability. They fly different. Uh, aircraft, although as you get later in the campaign, you're going to be flying mostly uh, the Phantom II. Um, and you each sort of turn in your campaign. The, the, the game is basically a series of, of missions that, that uh, uh, add up to a campaign. That's, that's how the, the game is best enjoyed. And um, 
the uh, each part of the campaign, each individual iteration of the campaign uh, story is a mission, and each mission uh, attacks a certain target. And through a combination of the political state at the time of your mission, the um, level of uh, intelligence that you have about your target, and the recon that you have uh, basically scouting out certain targets, um, all those things go into the decision that you're going to make about what target to hit. You know, If you have a good recon, if, you, if you've been uh, building up your recon uh, score, you can choose from multiple cards because it's it's a it's a solitary game. So you dr- draw certain target cards. If you have if you're only drawing two target cards, then you're stuck with. If you have two bad cards, you got to hit one of them, or you don't fly a strike that turn, uh, which can be a viable strategy. But um, and then if you have good intel, then you can uh, remove uh, defensive counters uh, before you fly the strike. And the politics track. Uh, determines basically how important a target you can hit because, uh, as we all know, the war in Vietnam had a lot of uh, political considerations and the um, the sort of more embroiled you are in the war and the, the backlash against the war, that will lead you to not be able to hit the most important targets and the most important targets happen to be the ones that, that gain the most um, – victory points. So you have to sort of play the war in a certain way so that you're you have the political freedom to bomb the things that will get you the most victory points. Um but then you have to also fly missions that will get you good intel and recon and try to balance all those three things. So um yeah, like Tom said, I mean it's a great it, it really captures the flavor. Uh, uh Dan Verson is a is a, a very talented designer, I think. He he's um done a bunch of games uh, he seems to be particularly interested in air combat. He uh, designed a fantastic series of games called uh, Down in Flames. It's played. It's best played as it's a it's a face to face game where you're just kind of throwing. I think Tom actually uh, uh, had sort of painted this picture for me when we were playing the computer version of it where he was saying, you know, wow, you know, I could really imagine this game being played face-to-face where you're just kind of throwing cards at each other, you know, waiting for the last person to sort of throw the final card that, you know, defeats the the air maneuver or gets the final, you know, the, the, the killing shot in. Um, and it, it has a lot of back and forth in that sense. And, and um, he designed the first game, which I really wasn't that interested in. It was called Hornet Leader in 1991. And I, I didn't really find that I just it didn't really kind of scratch my itch for air combat. It didn't it, it was it seemed sort of generic, you know, that at the time where you could uh, it was a um, desert storm was going on, and you know, uh, it wasn't particularly interesting to me as a game. Uh, and I think the, sort of Tom and I are the same age, and I think that I have the same interest in that period of of history that Tom does. Uh, and so, Phantom Leader was it's much more interesting to me than a game uh, called Hornet Leader, uh, where you fly F-18s, but. Um, but the game is really about uh, forcing you to make choices while you're playing against a system, the, the rules for which you, you actually already know. And that's the big difference between um, a, a system that you play against and an artificial intelligence because the artificial intelligence is sort of making decisions behind the scenes. And um, in a system, a solitaire system, you have to know exactly how – the game is going to respond to anything that you do. I mean, you have to know that. So before before you make any move, you pretty much know what how the enemy is going to respond to that move, how your 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 uh, opponent, how the system is going to respond, and and you still make decisions based on that. Which means that there has to be a certain amount of randomness involved. 
right? It substitutes randomness for an AI. So you either have, and in the case of Hornet Leader, actually in the case of most of these games I can think of, you have a combination of cards and dice that substitute that, you know, that randomness right. fills in where the AI would normally go. Yes. Yeah. Um, one thing that's great about Phantom Leader, the way it's structured, you mentioned this whole campaign thing, is that it really does run almost as a pers- in a persistent way. This is not a game you just sit down and play and then you run the campaign and you're finished. Because you can take these pilots and keep carrying them through mission after mission after mission after mission. Um, they they level up. Yeah, it's like an yeah, RPG. And so it does become in this war game, uh, role-playing game, uh, you know, you can have a pilot shot down and he's gone. He's MIA and he's gone. He's, mm-hmm. he's can no longer be part of your crew. And unless he escapes this, from the prison camp, unless, well, yes, I haven't had any much luck with that. I've had no John McCain types. Hmm. Um, well, I love, I love the, emphasis no, he, he didn't escape it. He, 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 but he, but he, he could have escaped. He's mean enough. He's a bad uh, they put this emphasis on the, the search and rescue operations too. The SAR, like that's a whole yeah. sort of subsystem in a way. Like, right. like how do you deal with a pilot that's shot down and the way the cards feed into that? Uh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's, I mean, it's, um, I've read also compared like to, uh, I mean, Michael Barnes, who writes uh, for No High Scores and other places, he's compared Phantom Leader to a sports team management sim. A what? Of course. Uh, stop it, Tom. Like, because <laughs> you are, because you are, you know, you're, you're watching your, you have to, to, to pick the right lineup. You have to pick based on the skills for the opponent you're facing or the mission they're on. Um, and there is this sense of, of progress through an entire campaign all the way through. And I think this is probably one of the great, th- I mean, I've listened to, uh, that Rob Davio is big on pushing um, in board games, Sun Risk Legacy, this idea of persistence, this idea that a game can continue beyond the single session, that it is a world you're building mm-hmm. and it's something you can do in a board game and not just have it live in this computer game world, right. that it's not always a fresh reboot. I think Phantom Leader does that quite well in an ex- to a, to a great extent, through using this really evocative era, really strong mission design, um, and forcing you know, really important, tough choices all the way through. Does Phantom Leader, though, it doesn't do that persistence from game to game, though. It's not like a metagame persistence, right. though. You're right. right. Well, and, right. And I would argue that that's actually a big failing that it has in the computer version, not in the board version. But, um, I mean, who designs an iPad app without achievements or you know, some kind of persistent, yep. like, high score. I mean, I, I would love to have uh, a record of, you know, the the pilot that scored the most air-to-air kills in, you know, one of my, you know, campaigns or, you know, have, uh, um, you know, the, the pilot with the most, uh, you know, SAM site kills or the most, you know, air-to-ground target destroyed. Uh, and it doesn't record any of that, which I, which to me is com- is crazy. Or the pilot that earned the most experience points, or the pilot that you know destroyed a target with the most stress while he was under the most stress. The stress is a a, 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 a characteristic that pilots get when they get shot at and try to evade. I mean, there are all these things that could have been in the iPad app, and they're not. And it it, it it's really kind of baffling to me. I don't understand why, especially since and this is the big. Thing that people are complaining about is that the app costs fifteen bucks, 
Yeah, this is not this is not a cheap five dollar. No, app. no, and and I would but, argue that you know I, I can't I can't speak for I can't speak for anybody for how much a fifteen fifteen dollars means to them. It certainly, was worth my fifteen dollars, but sure. uh, I don't know how you know what that means to anybody else. But uh, I love that Bruce's complaints remind me when you say that, even though I know absolutely nothing about these kinds of games. When I hear you talking about saving those stats, Bruce, isn't that absolutely like what all these sports uh, tracking games do like who hits the yes. most RBIs in one yeah. season oh, or yeah yes. so it sounds exactly like that kind of who thing but I will tell touchdowns. you yes right right exactly because you want to know which player to to put up for the kicking when the touchdown comes up uh, right but exactly. but you know what what game does do that Bruce a little game called Elder Sign Omens hmm. just so you know that yeah. will store your high scores and you can yeah. click on it and you can get a breakdown for why you have so many points so okay you mentioned this game twice so clearly you want to get <laughs> onto this discussion here Tom I know nothing about Elder Signs Omens so why don't you and you said it's a good solitaire game well yeah so here I think Bruce is particularly kind of adorable when he takes this um this this perspective towards history is having some kind of exceptional standing that other narratives don't have. Uh, so what, what I think all of these solitaire board games are about, and this is how Bruce started talking about Phantom Leader, is, is it tells a story. You know, you, you, you get a story from this, and there's no reason you, you know, there's nothing that history can give you that you can't get from, say, fiction or the Cthulhu mythos. I agree. Uh, so, so that's why, you know, I, I see Phantom Leader as every bit as good as and in the same boat as something like Elder Sign Omens. There's a great, uh, tabletop solitaire game I want to talk about that Alan Emmerich's company Victory Games made called Nemo's War based on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm, I, yes. I, I love yes. that thing. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So, so I feel that the, the point of these games, at least for me, you know, I love the trappings of the Cold War. I, I'm fascinated with that episode of history. It means a lot to me personally, but I can get just as much from a game that taps into the Cthulhu mythos the same way. Um, and that's what Elder Sign Omens is. Uh, there's a big, huge, messy co-op board game called, um, is it Arkham, Arkham City? Arkham, Arkham Horror. Arkham- Arkham Horror, thank you. The, the, the Batman mythos has appropriated the name and it confuses me because there's all oh, these yeah. Batman games. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, so Arkham Horror is a big, huge, messy Ameritrash game with a, b- a bazillion pieces and teensy cards and markers and it's just, the, the setup time alone just is such a disincentive to play that thing. So at some point, the, the folks who made that, I think that's Fantasy Flight, uh, they made a more streamlined game called Elder Sign Omens. And that is based on the Cthulhu uh, mythos. Um, and that also has a lot of little pieces. And I, I've never played the board game, but I understand it could be a little, uh, also a little uh, Ameritrash. They did an iPhone version of it where they basically concede, look, there's no reason to play this co-op. You, you can if you want, but it also works just fine as a solitaire game. So that's what Elder Sign Omens is. It's a solitaire game where you have, just like you have a squadron, quote-unquote, in, in Phantom Leader, you have a team of investigators, um, and they're just little markers you use to move around a board and do dice challenges that represent little uh, Cthulhu horror-oriented um, situations. Uh, and what you're trying to do is beat whatever elder god you've drawn at the beginning of the game. Um, so it's that same kind of thing where you're using dice, uh, there's cards that represent the challenges that you draw um, to fill in where normally an AI would be. And what you get from this whole thing at the end is a story. You know, uh, Ashkem Pete the hobo and the, uh, the, the medium and then the hardened, the hard-boiled detective and my archaeologist. They 
got all these magic items and they got a stick of dynamite and the hobo has his cigarettes to recover stamina and they killed Cthulhu using these things. Um, so it, be- it becomes this narrative with dice and cards where an AI would be. Uh, and similarly, Nemo's War, you, you know, I think a lot of us, even if you haven't read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, we are culturally familiar with a lot of the trappings of it. Who it hasn't used- read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Do you know Troy, somebody you who read- hasn't read that? I do, yes. Hey, oh, no, you know, oh, Troy, have you read that? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I'm okay, sure I there are plenty. Well, I've heard many people have not, but I'm sure they've seen the movies. Well, even then, I, so I, I rewatched the movie. The movie's terrible. Like, what if, that thing is just ridiculous. Uh, but it is, you know, this idea of adventuring in a submarine. I mean, Jules Verne totally, I mean, that, if that doesn't tap into a, a kid's imagination, I don't know what would. Um, so uh, that's the same kind of thing, is it uses the trappings and the little bits and pieces of adventuring under the sea in the 19th century to create a narrative, a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, yeah. it's your, your units are the Nautilus and Ned Land, the you know Canadian harpooner, and Professor, what's his name, Arondak, whatever, um, and his sidekick. Uh, and these are your resources that you're spending, and you're drawing cards for treasures, and you're fighting ships, which is die rolling. And then at the end... You've got a score, um, and it, it, it spins out a story. Um, so I don't think, you, you know, Bruce, when you sort of said, you sort of implied that with Phantom Leader, it draws in all these little trappings of history. Um, I think you can just as easily do that with, with fiction. Um, I agree with you. I completely agree with you. I, unfortunately, um, uh, the game that you described, uh, mm-hmm. um, the Elder Cthulhu Signs, uh, right. whatever it's called, yeah, uh, that doesn't do that. So that's what the problem is. So what? how does that not do that then? Well, see, the problem is that you have to roll these dice which have like a a monster or a uh, – They're symbols. There's a, like a little skull symbol or right, a tentacle exactly. symbol right, or right. – Right, Like a like – a, like a, like a, uh, what's that called? A magnifying glass is on there or like a scroll – Right, that represents clues. I mean, that's not on the dice, but that is one of the icons. Like it's it's a very, I think, to save on localization costs, it's a very icon-based uh, design. Right. Yeah. Well, which is fine with me, since uh, an excellent game that uh, is uh, uh, along the same lines with the dice, uh, War of the Ring, uh, uses the same, the same kind of symbols on the dice. The problem with the game that you're describing and the game uh-huh. that I'm describing is that there's a there's a fundamental disconnect. I don't think the the symbols or the the mechanics of the game don't adequately convey the action that's being performed, and that's the thing that I think is is the problem. Because the the player in Phantom Leader sort of goes into the game with the understanding or an expectation. It's more of an expectation that this weapon system will perform differently than another weapon system, and that this. Uh, um, missile has sort of this amount of chance of hitting something, whatever. And the the sort of decimalization, the the the, the phantom leader die is a ten sided die, and you sort of have this decimalization where you can sort of stratify risk uh, based on your understanding of a historical reality, which then is reinforced by you seeing the die roll, you seeing the numbers on the counters, the um, Elder Lovecraft um, Arkham game that you like so much um, has 
it, it's it's a very abstract in the sense that you roll some dice and you have a clue or you have a fire or you have a octopus and I don't think that I don't feel like if I'm shooting a a a, a shotgun as you keep using as an example I don't uh-huh. feel that I'm going to get like I don't feel like I should be able to get three octopuses out of my shotgun um and, and that's the problem. <laughs> so what you're saying, Bruce, is that there's a marked lack of decimalization in Elder Sign Omens. I would call it realism. <laughs> so here's what's going on there. And this is, I think it taps even more into this idea of these games as storytelling devices. Uh, if I'm telling a story, I am never going to, in the course of my story, unless I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons around a tabletop, which I did, but I've moved past that. Uh, I am never, in telling my story, going to say, and then Boromir got hit by an arrow that rolled a 20, and the critical hit killed Boromir. No, you do not say that in a storytelling. You just say, and the orc shot Boromir in the head, and Boromir died, and it was tragic. You don't bring up the orc's die roll. That's not part of the story. Now, when we mathematically recreate those stories, we need those die rolls. Fair enough. What Arkham, uh, Arkham, you've got me saying it, what Elder Sign Omens does is these symbols fill in for the numbers. But I disagree that they do so in a nonsensical way. For instance, skulls represent physical damage. If you have a shotgun, you can use that item to change a die roll to a skull. So that when you have a challenge that requires basically brute force, hey, beat up a cultist, that's going to require two skulls. You know, if you get uh, a tentacle, which represents like arcane insanity, basically, that's not going to help you just against a basic cultist. You need skulls. So if you bring a shotgun in, and this isn't going to be immediately apparent until you've played the game and sort of parsed the system in your head. I realize it, it looks a little weird, but if you bring a shotgun in, it's going to help you turn your dice over to skulls which represent brute force. I mean, that kind of thing is there, but it's not numerically represented. It might as well be. You could just say every one is a shotgun hit, every two is arcane power, every three. I mean, you could do something like that, but they've instead opted to go for these symbols. And while I I grant that it can look nonsensical at first, I do maintain that there is a a method to the madness there. I I agree with you, and I I mean, that's an excellent defense of it, and you know, as somebody who's wrong, you've done a great job of being wrong, and I really (laughs) commend you on on doing that but uh i still think for me there's there's a the uh the inability to also calculate the the probability easily uh, it it leads to uh it leads to and i i agree with you nobody nobody has is going to tell you tell you what your their thaco number is um mine by the way is is uh 12 Oh, perfect. Good. So um, that's a very uh, that's actually very high. Um, I, I think. I think uh, I've heard that. I saw that on uh, McNeil report about uh, what the high <laughs> tackle numbers were. But um, no, the 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 point is that um, it, it's uh, it's not so much about the number that you roll, but the the internal sort of internalization of risk stratification and what is risky and what is what you expect to be. Um, not riskier or, or right. dangerous, and you uh, performing these actions based on that risk stratification, and then getting results, thinking, "Oh, you know, I I, I risked a lot, and I succeeded, and got uh, a good result, and the story moves on." And uh, it's I think there's there's a little bit too much of a disconnect for me uh, in uh, in um, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, Miskatonic game. Um, because the uh, 
the dice and what you're looking at and and um you know the fact that i rolled a uh, you know a monster or a fire and then turn it into a skull with my shotgun the the the, the sort of cause and effect uh the cause and effect uh there in from a from a narrative standpoint is a little bit too much for me um it's it's it, it's a little too it it just doesn't evoke the action. I know that's what they're trying to represent. It just seems it just seems like it seems like a Thulu Yahtzee to me. And that's not you know what Yahtzee though is not that, that that's exactly accurate. But Yahtzee is just the numbers, and these numbers are here. You know, there's 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 a given number of symbols on each die, and right. and you have different colored die that you can use for different reasons. So it's not always one and six, but. If you want to look at it that way, you can definitely parse the math and calculate the risk. But I think what Elder Sign Omens is pushing players towards, and I think what you probably have a hard time with, Bruce, is this idea of sometimes, just uh, to paraphrase a popular saying, let go and let dice. <laughs> you know, you just have to... Uh, Interesting, yeah. Yeah, you just have to you know, just let the dice do it, and and yeah. the numbers I think encourage uh, this mathematical approach. This okay, what are my odds? And some people like that, some people don't. You could take that approach with Elder Sign Omens, but I, I think the intention of the design is to is to skew away from that. Hmm. Um, okay, so that, that's fair enough. Makes sense to me. Um, so what are can you think of what makes a, a bad solitaire? Game, I've played any I solitaire can. games, solitaire board games, games designed to be played alone. They really stand out, and what you think separates them from elder Miskatonic schoolgirls in trouble. <laughs> I want to play that game and, that you just mentioned, Troy. <laughs> and uh, uh, Phantom Leader, what's what separates them? Can you guys bring each of you bring one? Bruce, do you because uh, I have one comes to mind for me. Do you have? Uh, are all solitaire games good to you, Bruce? Oh, I mean, not not all solitaire games are good, but some of them are. Um, I, I don't Less really good than others. About... <laughs> yes, in a certain sense. Uh, I don't want to talk about bad solitaire games. I can talk about a different kind of solitaire game, which sure. um, uh, I don't actually play a lot of bad solitaire games. If I, I don't even consider a game unless I've heard a lot about the game and, and that it's uh, that it's good and, and try it out. Um, there's a game called Ambush, which is sort of legendary. Uh, among uh, board game players. It was one, I think, one of the very... Oh, you know what? That's fine. I'll, I'll give you two examples. Ambush breaks down. It, it's a, uh, it's a, um, a, a sort of a squad leader replacement. I think it was, was made for the same squad leader audience for people who wanted to... who desperately, like me when I was a kid, wanted to play squad leader, but they didn't have a lot of opponents. Actually, I, had, I, I was luckier than most. I had several uh, kids in my school who wanted to play squad leader. We used to play some serious squad leader when I was in eighth grade. But um, uh, so what it would do is it would sort of give you these missions and you would have to, um, uh, when you got to various points, you you could, um, you, you sort of revealed there was, a, there was a mission log that sort of told you what to do at each stage of the mission uh, based on based on what choices you made. It was almost like a choose your own adventure, but it was a little more um, sophisticated and, and uh, used a map and dice. The problem was once you learned what the responses were going to be, um, you know, you, you sort of played through all the branches and figured out what was going to happen. The the game they, you know ceased to be interesting because it was all about surprise. It was it was a game that um, held an awful lot of uh, uh, held your attention. It was you had no idea what was going to happen. It was one of the few games I've ever played where you really didn't know 
what was going to happen other than you know a, a tabletop kind of role playing game. Um, this is the one that had the the little sleeve with the numbers yes, exactly, for the scenarios. Exactly okay. the sleeve, so you could you, you know you would hide you know the other uh, other possibilities. And it had uh, I think there were there, there was there were a couple um, expansions for it because it was so popular. There was a, a Purple Heart was one of them, and Move Out I think Move Out was the first one. The Purple Heart was I can't remember. Anyway, bottom line is that game is great uh, until you've basically played it enough and realized what it's going to do, and then it's useless. So. Uh, but I got, definitely got my got my um, got my money's worth out of my copy of Ambush, and then I have another example. But Tom has to talk first. So I don't necessarily think this is a bad game. It's one that I think uh, doesn't quite do enough. Like I think it's an insufficient game, maybe. Uh, and I believe this is from a series. I only know it, like I know many board games, for its iPad version. Uh, and I'm going to try to pronounce it. So excuse excuse any mangling that I do with accents here. But here we go. This game I believe is called Le Vie en Masse. Did I do that right? How did that sound? That's. Are you speaking? <laughs> Swedish? <laughs> that was French. How dare you? Oh, wow. uh, leave Levy on mass. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a it's the it's the French Revolution uh, yeah. solitaire board game thing. Wow. Uh, and old. I love the idea of it. Uh, and it even even the production values like the map looks kind of cool, and you get this little goofy screen that comes up when you fight a battle. Um, but it's it's simple to a fault. Like it, it's the sort of thing where once you look at it, once you've played through it once or twice, the actual systems themselves uh, are just way too simple to merit much replay value. And the way it works is you simply have a, a deck of cards, each of which represents an event associated with the French Revolution, and you turn over a card and it's going to modify some die values and maybe move a couple of armies along a track. And it's all about trying to keep control of Paris while uh, Prussia and Austria and the British Army, and I think there's even a, an army counter for the masses, uh, while they converge on Paris. Um, and then you have a track for each of the three competing political philosophies, despotism, uh, the monarchy, and then you represent the republic, and you want to keep that track up. So, so it's all about just finessing the roles of D6s. Uh, it's very simple. I love the, I think the appeal of it is that you shuffle these cards and so the sequence of events is random. Uh, and I don't know the French Revolution enough to really appreciate the importance of what Pope said what about which, uh, king's relation. Like that's what the cards are those kind of things. So a lot of the nuance of that is lost on me. Um, but I would love something that, that's that simple, that streamlined, that fast with, say, the Civil War or the, or the Cold War, for instance. Um, with different subject matter, I could see that working, that even though the simple is, the system is so simple, it's just a D6, that it all comes down to shuffling events. Uh, I think that could work with, with subject matter that appealed more directly to me. So if you're really into the French Revolution, I can see Levy en masse being uh, really compelling. Um, but for me, I feel like that's an example of it didn't do enough to get me interested, to make me care about these things that I didn't know about, uh, which other games have done. You know, that's how I came to the Civil War, is playing Civil War games. I was like, wow, this is awesome. I want to know more. Levy en masse seems like it's built for people who already know that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's the same thing. It, it spins out a narrative. You know, here's the French Revolution. Here are uh, a random sequence of events. And now roll dice and move these things on tracks. Troy, how about you? You, you? you haven't talked. I don't play. I don't play very many solitaire board games. I mean, I'm one of the people who has a lot of board games uh, that I'm like Tom, just no one to play them with. 
With their solitaire board games, you don't need anyone, though. That you should then oh, I know, have more I know, solitaire. I, know, I, 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 very, I mean, I think I have, I have Phantom Leader and I have a, a Versen's World War Two one. There's um, a, he didn't he do a, a Rommel's War one? Because I have one as well. Yeah, this is this is a deep. This is the one in Europe. I forget what it's called. I have to look okay. it up. I have but, one yeah, that he did in North one. Africa. Uh, it's just a little map of North Africa, and it, it's solitaire. I think I don't even know if that has cards. It might be all dice. Um, but Virsen has done a few of these, hasn't he? Yeah, he's done a bunch of them. There's there's a U-boat leader, which which uh, one of the um, uh, quarter to three Sharmers um, uh, uh, endorses as uh, I think the best of the um, leader series. So I'm very interested mm-hmm. to try to try that out. I haven't tried it out. And by the way, uh, just a, a quick plug for, again, Nemo's War. Nemo's War is a lot about, like, stalking the seas in a U-boat uh, and trying to sink shipping. Uh, like, it, it plays on some of that. It's not – I doubt it's as robust, of course, as, as the U-boat game that Dan Pearson mm-hmm. did. Yeah, uh, well, some of the same mechanics. There will be a link to this at the bottom of the podcast. I do want to – There will be a link to a lot of these. I do want to talk about um, a game, uh, a couple games. There's a game called Patton's Best and a, a game before that called um, – uh, B-17, Queen of the Skies, which was a, sort of a revelation to me when I was uh, younger and uh, sort of – I think it was probably well, probably my first solitaire um, solitaire board game. And that's an example of a, a – I think it's a bad game um, in, in the sense that there's no game to it. You sort of take – you have a B-17 and you fly it. You sort of – it, it uh, decides your mission for you and then you fly and you move from zone to zone. You get attacked by fighters. And you uh, basically shoot at the fighters until they shoot you down, or or you uh, you drive them off. There aren't really many decisions to be made. I mean, if a fighter's coming at you from six o'clock high, then you you know fire at him with your tail guns and your top turret. You know, I mean, you just basically anything that can shoot fires at the fighter, and then you the die rolls decide everything. And uh, but when I was you know at a different age. It was very compelling to me because I was simply I was I was playing through these episodes that uh, I had read endlessly about, like you know the raids on uh, you know Regensburg and Schweinfurt and 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 the strategic bombing of Germany and and these um, uh, you know horrible um, casualties that the Eighth Air Force took, and you know it was just a way for me to go through and tell my own story about the uh, about the history and fr- from that perspective it was very uh, very effective you know you, your goal was to get a uh, a crew or you know your individual there were there were individual um crewmen for each station you had a pilot co-pilot you know engineer navigator etc and when they got to 25 missions they got to go home um, and, you know, they were rotated out and they had survived and it was a big thing. And you, um, you know, you would, uh, keep track of how many, you know, the bombardier, how, you know, how much on target was he and, and, uh, your gunners, you know, how many aircraft did they shoot down, that kind of thing. So the game sort of, it was basically, as Tom would say, and this is a new Tom Chick thing, uh, let the dice do the work or uh, jump into a barrel of dice or whatever he said earlier. <laughs> uh, the now the same, he, Bruce, is trust in God, but roll your dice well. Ah, <laughs> excellent. So so the um, the whole thing is just you sort of submit to the die rolls and, and it tells you a story. And at the end, you say, oh, you know, uh, Frank McLean, my, uh, my ball turret gunner, um, is uh you know he's uh he shot down eight or as randall gerald would say the the uh bolter gunner doesn't answer but um 
but uh, I think that Ball it's... Ball turret. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Alternatively, Bruce, you could just watch Memphis Bell. Is that a good the movie? movie? I've never seen no. it. <laughs> yeah, read Catch Twenty Two. When I think of Balterets, oh. I think of Catch Twenty Two. Yeah, Isn't there a Bal- anyway? Good, yeah. yeah. yeah so. <laughs> but uh, uh, but so are you holding this up as a good game or a bad game? Because you're making me kind of want to play it. I don't know. It's pretty equivocal. What do you think? I mean, this it's all uh, you know. This is all interpretation. Uh, what, what 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 would you do with that kind of game? Uh, well, you know, it sounds like one of those things where you don't have a lot of. Choice. Like, like when I talked about Levy on Mass, you always want to do the same thing in that. Like, there's never really a lot of option. You keep right. your Republic score high, so it helps your battle rolls, and then you just roll the dice based on what's coming at you. Right. Uh, so it seems like it's it's a kind of a kind of a passive sense to it. You know, when I play Elder Sign Omens, I'm making difficult decisions about what investigators to send where. You know, what right. what am I going to risk? Uh, right. And Phantom Leader, by the way, the same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, right. So it, it sounds like what what we're saying is that unless there's some strategy to it or sense of flexibility or a, a solid risk reward foundation um if you're just reacting to things the system is throwing at you that doesn't make for nearly as replayable or as good a solitaire board game yeah i mean it's 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 a very it's it, you're definitely reacting it's all about reaction i mean something happens you know a, a messerschmitt shows up you know at, at 12 o'clock and you have to either fire at it or not fire at it and there's really no no disincentive to fire at it you know what that reminds me of a bit bruce and these are kind of like an analog i think to solitaire board games Mm -hmm. uh there was an ipad release of one of those choose your own adventure Mm -hmm. books Mm -hmm. uh that involved rolling a die when you have to it was called blood of the zombies or something it was wretched because it was so poorly written but it was also based on you get to this point you roll a die and it tells you which pages you can turn to Mm -hmm. and you're just reacting you know a die roll happens and you choose one of two things it's almost like a multiple choice question where you're just going to see what's behind each choice. You don't know, randomly pick between these two doors. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like the worst of those kind of choose-your-own-adventure books. You know, it is the worst, but it's not the worst because I think that with, with solitary game, first of all, you have to start from the bottom line that people who play uh, board games get some sort of satisfaction out of a, a sort of – an aesthetic reinforcement, whether it be tactile or or visual or some combination of those things, of something that they're interested in. So, you yes, know, if, nice. if you, you want to – if you like airplanes, you want to see an airplane and you want to uh, fly the airplane. And if your airplane is in a bank, then you want to be able to know that it's in a bank. You put a little bank counter on it. You put a counter down that shows the airplane in a bank. It, you're, you're getting that feedback. And – I think that a good game or a good solitaire game allows you to sort of touch all those little aspects of the thing that you're interested in and, and say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know what I know what this uh, this um, uh, radar, you know, in, in Phantom Leader, I know what, what electronic countermeasures are. Oh, I can put a countermeasures counter. Oh, that countermeasures counter has this, um, this ability to, uh, you know, defeat uh, surface-to-air missiles, but it's not, you know— it's basically I get a, a 40% chance of doing that. Um, and, and as long as you give the player the the ability to interact aesthetically ta- or in a tactile way with that thing that he's interested in, then that player is rewarded. So I think that the decision-making aspect, the game aspect of, of a board game 
is only part of the uh, I, I was I was I was only part of the equation. I was, I was kind of taken uh, for, uh, not aback, but I was I was thought about um, 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 the uh, the the show um, Shut Up and Sit Down. Yep. With uh, who's what's what's Quinn's? I, 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 <laughs> Quinn Smith and yeah, Paul Dean. It's Smith, a great. Yeah. It's a great. Uh, one, it's one of my favorite board game. So, um, so shows. And in fact, they just uh, Paul Dean just wrote a post about uh, ambush uh, last week. Really, I have to, I have to go read it. I didn't see it. So 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 uh, I, I I I remember Paul is Paul and and. Quentin Smith is Quinn's, but Quentin Smith obviously had written for Rock Paper Shotgun. Uh, read a lot of his stuff; was very good. Um, but he was—I—I I, I think you pointed me to it, uh, Troy. He was doing a, uh, a video review of um, of Phantom, Phantom Leader. Leader, and he was doing it in his in his typical Quinn's way. And and you know, he said, you know, well, why wouldn't you? Uh, play? Why would you play a solitaire board game? You know, why wouldn't you just play a computer game? He's like, oh well, uh, uh, you have a point. And I, I actually, I, you, I think they're completely different experiences. And I think that um, the things that you get from a board game that you're playing and you um, you're able to get sat- feedback and satisfaction from elements that in a in a in a computer game are often best left hidden. So I think that. People who are looking for or trying to interact with a with a subject of their interest are often better served. Not better served. That's a they're served in whatever way is good for them. But there is a significant uh, uh, aspect of that interest that I think is uh, uniquely served by a solitaire board game as opposed to a computer game. You know, you mentioned that, Bruce, and it it makes me think one of the things that I really like about Elder Sign Omens is the artwork in it. And Fantasy Flight uses a lot of artwork from, they've got several Cthulhu-oriented games, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they've, they've over the years hired many artists to do many different kinds of things, right. and they just marshal all that work and pour it into Elder Sign Omens. Yeah. So you get this, these cool images, just these flashes, of mythos-oriented things. They don't have to be explained. They're just little glimpses of imagery. Right. And it's one of the things that I find really gratifying. When you mention that, that occurs to me, well, yeah, that's part of why I enjoy the game is because I like seeing this this weird, unexplained picture of a curator unpacking a vase and there's a tentacle behind him that mm-hmm. he doesn't see. Like, Or there's, I remember too, this was a, I was gobsmacked by this image. There's one event, I think, where uh, there's a huge tidal wave, like a tsunami coming up on a city, and you see in the water of the wave, like the silhouette of Cthulhu. I'm like, wow, that that looks awesome, and it's just this great visual. Um, so that that definitely, yeah, like the the sort of uh, give, bringing that evocative imagery into a game is really cool. And one of the failings of that Nemo's War game that I mentioned is the production value. I, I don't know what's going on over there at Victory Games, but they seem bound and determined to do the lowest level of production value they can do in any game. Because Nemo's War. Victory Point. Victory, Victory Point. Games was the was the spinoff of Avalon Hill that uh, ah, yes, produced a lot you. of great games. Victory Point Games, yes, Alan Emmerich's company. Sorry. And and the, you know Nemo's War is just so rough hewn, and it yeah. looks like they ran off the board yeah. on on the the yeah. some, on a Xerox machine at Kinko's. Um, but what they do, and where, what I do find gratifying in Nemo's War, is each of the little event cards has a snippet of text from the novel, mm-hmm. and yeah. and that you know that kind of works for me. Uh, I do wish it had. Well, to follow up on this, I mean, but we've talked a lot about this game. Do wish what? I'm sorry. You, let Tom finish. I'm fascinated okay, to know sorry. what he said. You, you, you do wish what? 
Tom. Oh, oh, I do. I do wish that that visually, uh, and as far as the production value of the pieces, that this would be one. This would be such an incredible game if, for instance, it had visuals like. There's a there's a little indie game called Ancient Trader, uh, yes. where you you yes. move the ship around, and the artwork on that was stunning because yeah. they took this almost Monty Python esque approach to, uh, and it looked like old those old uh, sepia tone maps of the of the world, um, and it had this this combination of whimsy and mystery and comedy to it, uh, and I can't help but think if Victory Point Games. Would, would marshal that, would, would hire someone to do that kind of art, and if they would pay for really good components, mm-hmm. you know, Nemo's War would, would regularly have a place at my kitchen table. Yeah. Um, Levy on Mass is also Victory Point Games. I did not know that. That makes sense. Uh, okay. So that's something. So you've mentioned two Victory Point games. So that's, uh, so I looked that up. Uh, to check it out, to Levy on Mass. There's, there's two Victory Point games. Uh, so following up on this, I mean, we talked a lot on the show about theme and mechanics, um, how you can have a really good theme or really good mechanics, and sometimes you can have great mechanics and a lousy theme. We've talked about uh, mini board games that have very shallow themes and deep mechanics, etc. So it seems like both of you are arguing, and I think you're right here, that in a single-player game, really the theme can get you through a hell of a lot. I think the theme is the hook, yeah. I mean, that's what hooks you in. Um, the theme's always a hook, but I think that maybe the theme can even sustain you past um, mm. a lot of other things. Because you you're you playing by yourself. It's not like you have to convince yourself with other, with other people. Like, I, don't, I think that you, because the system is so exposed, maybe you're willing to forgive more. Mm. So I thought, I'm putting this out there because you know I think the theme really is a... Because uh, you're both really talking about, because I mean, Tom, you see, I mean, Levy on Mass doesn't work for you at all, pretty much. You pretty much chalk it all, all to the theme. No, 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 the mechanics. Like, no, the problem with Levy on Mass is it's such the simple mechanics. It's real deterministic. You always push up your Republic score, and then you just let the dice okay. handle what may. Like I, I would, yeah, yeah. I, I just feel the game system in Levy on, on Mass is just so threadbare. If it was about the Civil War, would you think you'd be more forgiving? Of well, it? I, yeah, I think, but that's almost true of any game. Like, I would, I would suffer through mm. a lot more if I loved the theme. Nemo's War, for instance, I, I love Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I love Jules Verne. I love that kind of whimsy. Um, so I don't mind that it's butt ugly. You know, <laughs> that doesn't bother me <laughs> near, nearly as much. Uh, you know, it's weird. I mean, I, you know, I think Troy, I, I hear what you're getting at, but I think that that is a kind of a deeply personal thing from and it varies from player to player. Oh, abs- absolutely. Uh, I mean everything recently. Yeah, and I I'm in the weird situation where I kind of I I need good gameplay and I need a good theme. Uh I can appreciate each independently, but I I just uh I'm I'm very demanding on both fronts, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Tom. I mean I, I don't have time to play. I mean even the the solitaire games I have um I mean I haven't broken out a solitaire board game that I have uh in years. Um I've been fiddling around with uh, with this game from Victory Games called Carrier, which is uh, basically a way for um, uh, people in the time before uh, the computers to uh, play a uh, you know a carrier World War II um, carrier versus carrier game, which was then done very well by uh, uh, SSG in uh, Carriers at War, and then was done less well by SSG when they kind of forgot what made the game good or tried to update it. Um, that's a whole different show. Carrier has got to be like 20 years old or something, right? Carrier's at war, yeah, it's a, it's a good 20 years old. But Carrier itself is in, from 1990. Um, but that's a very complex sort of... Um, that's that's a game that almost... It, it's almost... 
it's very difficult to figure out exactly, uh, you know, what things are driving what, and the game is so complex. But the, but I guess my point is that uh, I haven't played a, a, a solitaire game, board game, in a, in a long time, and um, it, it really would have to be very. I, haven't play, I mean, I don't play a lot of computer games either because I don't have time. But you know, I'm 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 very selective in the same way with solitaire board games as with computer games probably even more so because the solitaire board game uh tom doesn't doesn't know this but um whatever uh cthulhu girls on fire that he was talking about is um it's terrible to set up it takes so long the the actual board version of it that it's it's almost not worth it um whereas you can fire it up on your iphone and play it in a second um, so uh, a solitaire board game has to be really good uh, to get me to pull it out and go through the sometimes extensive uh, investment in time to play the game. Uh, to, uh, sorry, to set up the game before I play it. Now here's a question. I mean, there are some games that are designed multiplayer, but also have single player variants or solitaire mm-hmm. variants. Do any of those really work well, solitaire variants of games designed? It's funny that you mentioned that, Troy, because I think in those cases, you're almost always going to have to put in some kind of an AI to sub for the decisions a human player would make. But I have seen, um, there, there's a game called uh, Labyrinth, War on Terror, 2001 to, huh? That's the full name <laughs> of it. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's one of those card-based historical things like 1960 or like that, uh, French-Canadian war thing, you guys, a few acres of snow. Uh, but it's based on contemporary politics and terrorism. And there's a, there's a solitaire variant in there, which having played the game multiplayer, having read the rules on how the solitaire would work, I look at that and I think, ah, no, that has no interest. <laughs> you know, you're basically just turning over cards and, and doing, wrote moves for what another player would do. Like they're very, there's a very simple flow. I say very simple. There's an extensive flow chart for what you have the other player do based on different things. And it's just what an AI would do. Yeah, you know, it's just like, hey, instead of us having an AI maneuver this flow chart, fill in and, and make the other player's moves for him. Um, so I kind of feel like a good solitaire game has to be built as a solitaire game and not a version of a multiplayer game where you put a flowchart or an AI in place of the other player. Right. Um, I agree with you. You have to yeah, – ultimately, a, the, the, a good solitaire game is going to break down to you learning the system and then the designer having calibrated the system such that even when played optimally, the, uh, the random element makes it possible to lose – uh, and so it's it's calibrated so that a good player will still lose occasionally because of the dice and will experience that loss not as a and this is where the hook comes in not as a you know a failure of probability but as uh, a success of the story being told in a in a way that took an unlikely turn um, but still was satisfying Bruce, do you know of, or Troy, you might know this one. I, I remember when I was a kid, some owning some solitaire board game based on, I think, a British commando raid on some Nazi submarine yes, pen. Yes, Raid on San Nazir. Ah, uh, yes, thank you. And yeah. you're saying Nazir? Is it? Yeah, that's right. That's Nazir, right. Yeah. Yeah. Is that good? Because I remember that as a kid, and that was one of those things where I can't get any of my friends to play, you know, whatever multiplayer game I owned. So I remember breaking that out and, and being kind of fascinated with it. 
Do you remember yeah, how that I, works? Uh, um, I I never actually owned that game. I had a friend that uh, that owned it, and we tried to play it, and um, uh, I don't think we actually even played it. We were trying to play it together, kind of solitaire, and, and uh, uh, yeah, that was like in seventh grade, I think. Well, uh, you guys were doing it wrong, it sounds like. Yeah, I think we were doing it wrong. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, <laughs> I remember the game. Actually, I actually very much remember trying to play it, but I don't, I don't remember a lot about the game. That's something that uh, that I have to look back up and and and. Uh, and and see, I I do remember the game. I actually remember the cover of the game because I remember that box. He's like, dude, yeah, come over. We'll like uh, we'll play this game. It's like a solitaire game. I was like, oh, that okay, <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> you can watch well, me. No, but here's the thing, okay. Let me let me tell you something. Some of the most, and this is this is goes to to computer games as well. Some of the most satisfying uh, computer game experiences I've ever had were multiplayer single player games. Where, uh, yes. I mean, that's how I that's how I played both XComs. Is I didn't play them myself. I played them with a friend of mine. Where I would go over to his apartment and we would sit there and we would switch off missions. And I would take a mission and he would take a mission. And and whoever was controlling would have a guy standing behind him going, "Oh, don't do that! Oh, you idiot! Don't don't go there! Oh, move that guy!" And uh, yeah. and so you know. That's the that's the sort of um, I, I always think that um, I think this is a, a Tom Chickism, but I'd rather play uh, I'd rather play a bad game against a good friend than a good game against a stranger, um, and uh, and that that's that kind of thing that um, I think that the 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 personal interaction sort of makes up for a lot. So I don't really remember a lot about the Radon Saint Nazaire thing. I think it probably I think we're probably doing it wrong. But if if uh, if I had remembered it as being good, it might have been because I just had a good time with a with a friend of mine that I that I played against. Yeah. Well, Bruce, let me just extend the invitation to you. I'm going to be playing Far Cry 3 later tonight. You are welcome to come over and watch me if, if that's your thing. If you just want to watch someone play a single player game, that's come awesome. on over. Awesome. No, because then I would have to. Then I would have to. No, because then we'd have to switch off at each like save point, and right. uh, we I would never get past a uh, single save point. So you'd be very hungry. true. <laughs> uh, I, I want to real quick point out something yeah. that uh, that Nemo's War does that I, I think is kind of unique amongst these solitaire games. Uh, and I don't mean to turn this into the Nemo's War uh, mm. episode because Phantom Leader is very good and there's a lot to be said about Phantom Leader. Um, but one of the things I really like about Nemo's War that I haven't seen in other solitaire games is the way it handles victory conditions. Okay. Because normally it's very clear what you need to do. You know, you need to beat Cthulhu. You need to knock a certain number of markers. You need not let him get a doom track up a certain level and do hit point damage to him. Like, that's always what you do every game. Phantom Leader. Actually, Phantom Leader is great with playing with the objectives based on the cards that come out and the the, re- the intel. You know, Bruce, you talked about that. Um, so there's a lot of variability there. But one of the things I like about Nemo's War is its approach to, you know, we know there's a story to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. What happened to Nemo and the Nautilus, that's all very clear. It's historical. How, how can you vary from that? So what they do with this game is they play with the idea that Nemo himself is a mysterious character, and you hmm. don't know what it was that guy wanted. Hmm. So... Each character has basically a morale or a hit point track, and as you use them for challenges, they can go down the track. And when Nemo's uh, health or morale or whatever, I think it's just called his his uh, motivation track or whatever, when it hits a certain level, you then have to decide what is my victory condition going to be for this game. When you're normally playing, uh, there are you can 
you know, you can do a variety of things to get points, but at a certain point, you have to lock in what victory condition you're chasing by deciding, is Nemo most interested in exploring, in science, in war, or in driving back imperialist forces, in, in liberating oppressed people? <laughs> so, so you pick one of those four things, and then everything you do from then on is balanced accordingly based on how many victory points it will earn you. So what can in one game be about sailing around to the different seas and avoiding fleets and gathering treasure for scientific pursuits in another game is about spending money to liberate oppressed countries or is about sinking the most ships. Uh, I really like that flexibility and the way that you play a few turns before you have to decide what kind of game is it going to be this time. And it's really just a scoring trick, but uh, it's very clever. And I like how it plays with Nemo as a character. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than just a, a broader gameplay mechanic. Uh, I like the great, theming of it. That's a great point, Tom, because the 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 Nemo's War, I, I'm also a fan of Nemo's War, which there will be a link to at the bottom of the podcast, and I'm going to make a point about Victory Point Games after I say this, but uh, the thing that Nemo's War is really doing is it's, it's giving you a way to... It, it's basically uh, uh, introducing different mechanics in the game, but not forcing those mechanics to... Uh, interact so much with one another. So you're extending the gameplay by letting the person take these different tracks through the game, but not having to have those different tracks actually keep, uh, you know, be, um, uh, uh, be balanced with each other. I, I'm, I'm not putting this well. I guess the, the, the point is that you're going to play the game differently based on the types of victory conditions, but you may not play that uh, a certain victory condition in in a in a in a series of playing. So as you experience those different victory conditions, you extend your gameplay. But I, I want the, here's what here's what I want to say about um, victory point games is that the the poor production values are actually part of the the um, the goal of the company, which is that it's trying to, um, it's really trying to give people or a, a chance to design games themselves, and therefore it's it's opening up the sort of the idea of game publishing to the most, uh, the widest range of designers possible, and that means that they can't spend a lot of money on any individual game. Uh, if you know if they were going to really put a lot of resources into publishing, then they would have to choose the best designs and sort of put them out there and and invest all their money in those. And Alan Emmerich's goal is to sort of get people to design games, and you can design a game and have an idea, and he gives you a way to publish your game, and you go ahead and do it. And um, the downside to that is that the the physical production values on the game is not necessarily going to be as high as people would expect. But I think it's an interesting trade off, and I wouldn't. Uh, it is. We should probably get Mr. Emmerich. Oh, on the I, show. Uh, I would uh, totally support that. All right, uh, so we should be wrapping up here uh, since we're past our hour mark. Uh, we usually have. Um, so uh, Phantom Leader, it is uh, $16 on the iPad, but I think it's well worth uh, the money. Uh, I think Bruce is right. There really should be some achievements or some way of tracking stuff a little better than it has. But the Out of the Park Baseball app doesn't have that either, really. You know, you actually can do that uh, with Phantom Leader if you just keep a pad of paper handy. Yes, Tom. I don't, I don't know about you guys. In, uh, notebooks. But one of those would be great, but I don't know about you guys, but I have in every board game I own a high score sheet. 
Am I the only one who does that? Like where you play a game and you write down the scores and really? Come on. Nobody else, neither of you does that. Come on. I only do that if the game provides it like um, uh, Lord <laughs> of the Rings cooperative game. So unless it's officially sanctioned, Bruce, you will not keep high scores. Well, because it would be unrealistic. Because that means that <laughs> if it doesn't have it, that means it didn't happen in real life. You know what? If you're listening to this podcast and you do this, I want you to post in the comment section. I don't want to sit here and think I'm the only one doing that. Come on. If you introduce it outside, outside of the box into the game, you've officially modded the game. And Bruce, Bruce isn't a modder. Modding. You've made that very clear. Okay, so thank you, Tom, for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Bruce, we'll see you again sometime soon, I know. You will see me. Say goodnight, all. Good night, all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.